Welcome to the Aviator Zone Podcast. Aviator Zone Podcast. With your host, Captain Felipe Santiago. Flying stories, career advice, and a lot of hangar talk. Let's talk aviation. Welcome back to the Aviator Zone podcast. Today we have Mike Sacolosa. He's a private pilot, instrument rating, and a owner of a Cessna 182RG that we actually went to go pick up together. We'll talk about that later on in the show. Mike, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me, Felipe. I appreciate it. Good to see you. Yeah, same to see you here. You know, we run into each other all the time, but you're always running around flying that airplane. How many hours have you flown in your airplane already? In that airplane, I have 560 hours. I have 659 hours right now. In that airplane, 500 and, and what? And 29 hours. 29 hours. And how long have you had this airplane for? Uh, September 11th of this year will be two years. So just so under two, two years. years. You put about 250 hours a year on that airplane. Yep. And we fly her a lot. It's a great bird. That is amazing. You know, the average airplane, I believe, flies about 100 hours a, a year for the private pilot um, owner or a private ownership. So to fly 250 hours, you're doing two and a half times that. That's that's really good. That's That's great for your airplane. Mike, um, tell me a little bit about yourself. What did you uh, do for a living before you started into flying and what got you into flying? So let, let's go back a little bit and then we'll continue with the story about your 182. I, I, I owned an automotive repair shop. I'm a certified master mechanic, did that for 35 years. Uh, when I was in fifth grade, I got glasses and found out years, a few years later that you couldn't fly in the military if you had glasses. And that gave up everything for flying for me. I never gave it another thought, never even considered an airplane just yeah, considered private, but didn't consider having my own airplane. And just put it out of my mind. One Thanksgiving, a close friend of mine calls me up and he said, I'm flying around today in what's called a Sea Ray, which is an, a flying boat, they call it, an amphibious aircraft, uh, on the St. John River. And we're bouncing along and having a great time. You gotta see this airplane. And I'm like, seriously? He goes, yeah, you're, you're gonna love this thing. Turns out they're in Apopka, Florida, is where they build them. We took a uh, road trip up there, my wife, my son, and my, my friend. Uh, we met the guy who designed the plane, built the planes, and he took me for a test ride in it, or test flight, I guess you'd call it. And this guy's insane. I mean, he puts this little airplane through crazy maneuvers, and, and he lands the airplane by turning the airplane off and just coasting all the way to the water. So <laughs> this is how safe this airplane is, he, wow. he, he claims. So it was a, a very fun time. Uh, my wife climbed in the airplane and uh, sent her for a ride in it. And she gets out of the plane, she says, there's no way you're buying this airplane. And I said, well, we'll talk about that. And that, that was, you know, it made me say, I'm gonna learn how to fly the plane. Well, I learned that you only need a sports pilot's license for that plane. And here you think a sports pilot, oh, you only got to put in 20 hours. Easy. Anybody can do a it. Anybody can do that. You know what? Flying an airplane is really easy. It's landing the airplane. It's really hard. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, you need everything, right? Yeah, yeah. You know, and she said, well, all right, the only way you're going to do any of this is you got to get a full uh, private pilot's license. And so the, the search went uh, I went on with the search. I started making phone calls. Uh, Tammy M. Airport. Uh, I was born on this airport. My parents owned 10 acres of land on nine left. No, yeah, nine left. So our house was right in the middle of nine left. 
we got uh, they got eminent domained out of there by the county to wow. to build the airport. So I so land how was this? I land where my house used to be <laughs> <laughs> as a kid growing up on a regular basis. So curious that you bring that eminent domain. I was just reading this book, um, Aviation uh, Law and uh, Practical Aviation Law and Aerospace Law. It's by ASA. Very good uh, book. If uh, you're a pilot, I think you should read it, whether you're a professional pilot or a private pilot. I think I shared you with uh, some of my notes about that book. With right. You. you did. You did. And it talks about eminent domain and, you know, talking about some airports that people have had like they so how they take away some of your airspace sometimes from your property is like an upside down cake so there's been cases where people have had uh open land and they've taken away eminent domain but they've taken up airspace by eminent domain and they literally have like two inches of that they can build on the edge of their property like two inches huh did not know right so you couldn't build because obviously you're in the protected right 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 so they have these arguments back and forth with you know with the court of the city and all this legal stuff to try to be able to hey look you took away my, right, my rights right, of right. use to that land because I what can I build that's two inches tall right yeah so I think that was pretty cool so how long ago was this that they took away this this land do you, do you I, know I think it was 1963 or 64 right because this airport used to be at FIU and right they moved it from FIU the original right Tamiami Airport the original Tamiami Airport right. on Tamiami you know trail right exactly exactly and so. Then, uh, you know, occasionally my dad would bring us out here to, to see the airplanes and drive around. But that, that was about it. Was was he sour that they took away the, the nah, land? Nah, nah. You know, he, he moved to a, you know, closer into the city, so to speak. I mean, there was nothing out here. There was <laughs> nothing out here. <laughs> that's how I feel like it's out west. And one day that's going to be, you know, just like what we see here. I mean, you see it creeping and creeping and creeping. I think now they're talking about moving the... Uh, uh, what is it called the urban development boundary i believe it is so they're trying to move that west so they can develop more so it's going to be interesting to see what's going to happen with this airport because again you know we just build more stuff around right. here and more houses means more people are going to be complaining about airplane noise even though the airplane's been here for right well you know it's the old thing you came to the nuisance the nuisance was here and you moved to it so that carries a certain amount of weight with of course. it yeah. yeah. So, but when you get enough people, then all of a sudden the weight disappears. But, yeah. But, uh, you know, it's the, sad, but it is what it is. You right. know, we've seen a lot of sad stuff happening in the on the West Coast with that with that. You know, uh, these little airports that were the runways are being chopped up and you know very restrictive with the noise abatement procedures. So going back, so I, I took you off on a tangent here because eminent domain I think is so interesting, especially right. when it comes to airports. <laughs> I think North Perry has been in some some of that gray area for a long time. So back to, uh, you, you flew the Sea Ray. I remember you flew in a Sea Ray once here. Uh, well, that was after I started my class. The, um, the friend of ours who owns the Sea Ray, they, they take an annual trip to the Bahamas every year, a group of uh, about six to eight of those planes, and said, hey, do you want to go? And I said, sure. And it turns out that his friend has a Sea Ray, and he's an um, instructor. And so he rents the seat in the plane. So I, I got to fly left seat, and I got time for flying it and learned how to fly uh, an amphibious aircraft over to the Bahamas. I mean, it doesn't get any better than that. It, it was so crazy. So where did you fly in the Bahamas? Like, what, what island did you go to? Or you we, went to several islands. Yeah, we, go, we went uh, to South. Island we Island. went to Andros first, and then we went over to, I believe it was uh, Chub K, and we, I think we went down to Eleuthera. But, I, I, yeah, it was down to Eleuthera we went. 
and then, then we came back. So yeah. that's a lot of flying in a small airplane. Yeah, yeah. It's a lot of water out there, but it's beautiful flying. Oh, it's... And you know, I, I remember uh, when I used to fly the 135. We used to stay in uh, Sa- uh, South Andrews. There's a place there called Small Hope Bay Lodge, and it's kind of like a little boutique hotel. Uh, man, they had really good Canadian steak. <laughs> <laughs> but we used to love it because it was an all-inclusive place, and we would go in there and land. We only flew it in the daytime. We didn't fly at night in the Bahamas. So you get there early. Sometimes I even, I even went diving out there. So it's a pretty yeah, cool yeah, place. It's, it's, I love the Bahamas. It's such a beautiful flight over the water uh, to see the different shades of color. I have a friend of mine that has a house down in Crooked Island, so I've flown down to Crooked Island yeah, Crooked three Island. times, which is about 425 miles from Miami here. So it's uh, you fly over the whole Bahamas chain. It's it's uh, it's beautiful. quite incredible. Yeah, the the shade of water. If you look at Google Earth and you zoom out on Google Earth, and you look at the Bahamas, you don't see that shade of blue anywhere on the world. Right. It's it's, it's maybe tremendous. Belize. Belize has some of it, uh, and I think there's some areas by India and stuff that have that kind of color of blue. But I mean, the majority of it is yeah, is here, and we're very lucky to have it so close to us, absolutely. and so accessible in a general aviation airplane. So we're very lucky. So you went on this trip, and I think at that point you already were here at flight school. You you had about you came into my office once, and you said that you were done, that you were not going to continue doing this. Right, right. I, I started in January, came and uh, interviewed you and two other places on the on the airport here, and the other two were uh, puppy mills where they just cram you into a classroom five days a week. And with a bunch of kids, and I was like, ah, that, that ain't going to happen. Well, we have kids here, too. Yeah, but I, <laughs> you know, I'm a, an old man. I was 59 years old at the time, and I said, you know, I'm, I need a little bit more um, hand-holding, and uh, I want it to be a little bit more personal. Personal. So I, I walked into here, and you have a beautiful facility here, and you introduced yourself, and you took me out to the airplane, and you, and you re- reminded me of me when I was your age, just a go-getter and, and wanted to produce a great product. And I said, all right, I'm in. I started the next day. <laughs> I handed you a check and said, I'm let's in. Let, let, let's do this. And I brought my wife with me because I wanted a second opinion of the whole thing. And Elena was very impressed by you also. And she said, now this will be a good school for you. You're going to like it there. And I did. I did. So I started flying like crazy. I mean, I was every... I don't know if I was every day, but I was definitely three days a week for sure, just hitting it hard. And You were frequent. I remember that. And I think that that really helps any pilot, you know, frequency. I, I talk about it all the time. I don't, you know, I get bored saying it. But, you know, if you do something once a week, you're never going to get it done. Well, there is a there is an edge there, though. It's a ragged edge that, that you run because I'm not 19 anymore. So I thought, I, in my brain, I thought I was 19, but my body didn't... Uh, agree with that and there is a tremendous amount of stress that goes on in learning how to fly an airplane especially you know you're not used to radios you're not used to weather you're not used to the control of the airplane you're not used to the bumps flying the plane's the easy part every little thing that happens is new to you so i didn't realize how much stress there was on me uh, for, for doing that and then i took my first cross country uh, with um, I believe yeah, it was one. We, we took our first cross country. So we went to three locations and I came back and I slept the whole next day. <laughs> I couldn't get off the couch. I was like, what is this all about? And we were flying probably 2,500, maybe 3,000 feet. And I was just exhausted. And then it hit me that I said, you know, if it's going to be like this every time I fly, I don't know that I can do this. 
Or that I, you want to do that. Yeah, right. I mean, it was, Elena was like, you, you know, this is, this is kicking your butt. And I was, well, I don't know. And I, I gave it a lot of thought. And at this point already, I had a contract on a C-rate to buy. <laughs> we had a verbal discussion. You know, it was a verbal contract, I, I would say, where, you know, we, I talked to the guy. We agreed upon the price, and we were getting ready to send paperwork. And then this happened to me, and I had to call the guy up and say, I have, I have to back out. I, I can't do this. I'm not going to be able to, to fly. And I was really a come to, to Jesus moment of what I was going to do. And I walked into your office and I said, I'm done. I, I can't do this anymore. It's too hard for me to do it. My physical body just can't handle it. And uh, you were like, well, I don't know. And I said, dude, this is not safe. I'm going to fly my family around and it, it's not safe. Do you think, and this is coming back and kind of looking back at it, do you think that the stress of the requirements and knowing the minimums and all that stuff kind of puts more stress on the individual. Like if I were to say, for example, Mike, you're going to get your license, you know, and it's going to take, you know, we're going to go with an instructor and do this flight. And you had no other knowledge of, you know, the minimum is 40 hours. You know, some people do it in 70. Do you think that that would take an effect on, on the pilot? Like, well, I was doing my own personal ground school at the same time of flying. So I, I had gotten the Sporties uh, package, and they, they we had, had a different setup in the school. I'm sorry to interrupt, but we had a different setup back then. We used to do only online ground school and focus more on the flying. Right. And kind of let you do the online ground school yourself. Right. So they, Sporties has a 900-question uh, sample test, I guess you'd call it, or, or they, they try to, to give you, like, every possibility of a question that you could have. And I answered those questions every single day. Okay. I sat at a computer for whatever number of minutes each day and answered a group of questions. And then we start to keep track. You were able to keep track of the ones you got right and the ones you got wrong. And then you kept, I kept going back to it. So this was a daily routine, whether you know, it was either in the air or I was studying on the ground. And it, at 59 years old, it was a lot different learning than it was when you were 15 years old. I was amazed at how hard and how much time it took for my brain to absorb the information and be able to get it right. And that's scientific. I'm actually reading a book um, that kind of talks about learning and how people learn. And it's just the way that we are. When Once we start aging, I believe it's past 30 is what they say. Once we pass 30 years old, it just becomes harder for us to learn any skill. Um, and it's, and it's kind of crazy because, you know, we see it with our students and I think a lot of, yeah, the talent code is called the book. Uh, and it talks about how people learn and how to make, you know, efficient learning. I think a lot of people when, you know, when you're a 16 year old, you only have one thing, you know, in your mind, right? To well, get my license. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, we can't talk about the second right. one. <laughs> so maybe that one's first and then we'll fly the second. Right. And then after that, you you know, that's all your focus is, right? Flying, 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 flying. When you are later down the road, you're thinking of mortgages, wife, well, I family. Well, I was very fortunate. I'm retired. Right, you're retired. So I had the, plenty of time to do this. I didn't have the, the other stresses. It is amazing, for me anyways, how much stress it was for me to learn how to fly an airplane. The other thing that I noticed is I've been driving a car since I'm 10 years old. So I had roughly 50 years of experience of doing everything with my hands and doing very little with my feet. 
<laughs> so the first day I'm taxiing down the the taxiway, Chris is telling me, "You're like a snake going on." Stop using your hands. <laughs> your hands don't do anything. <laughs> and so I finally got to the point where I crossed my arms in front of me and just learned how to just use my feet. So there was a and but the instinct right away all the time up in the air was to you to use your hands to use your hands to use your hands and I was gripping the the yoke way too hard. Now I fly an airplane and I like rarely touch the yoke. I mean I learned that you don't really fly airplane. You kind of guide it in the direction that that you, yeah, you want to go. You tap it in the direction right. that you want. The to airplane go. flies itself, and you just it's a lot different. Trim, Elena was trim, trim, uh, trim. Elena was laughing at me the other day because we took a quick flight up to uh, Pompano Beach to have lunch with a friend, and the weather was iffy that day. There were a lot of uh, thunderstorms moving through here a week or so ago, but they were moving quick. And I, I like to fly up the west, you know, over the Everglades because I go to Boca all the time uh, to fish. And so it's a quick flight for me up there. And I'm used to it. No flight following, nothing, get there. And I'm on the roll here out of Tamiami. And the controller here says, hey, you really want to go out west? Because there's a line of thunderstorms out there to, all the way out through the Everglades. And I say, yeah, I'm going to sneak right by it. He says, you know, there's nothing up the coast. And I say, yeah, I know. It's all clear. I said, all right. And I'm on the roll, and we're having this discussion <laughs> on, on, on the roll as I'm lifting up. So I said, all right, give me a squawk. He gives me a squawk, switches me over to Miami, and Miami turns me to the north immediately. And I say to her, I want to go east. She took you to, to Miami International. She turned me right back out to the Everglades, flew me right back into the weather. <laughs> and I'm going, she switches me to the next controller, and I say to the next controller, this is ridiculous. This is not what I asked for. And then he chides me, which he's right. What did you accept it for? Tell her, no, you're going to fly east. And so it, the, the point of that whole thing was then he switched me over to Opelaka because I had to go through Opelaka airspace. And then Opelaka switched me back to, to him. And then him switched me to Fort Lauderdale. And it's just boom, boom, so boom. boom. Is just, all oh, this is happening in a minute. This is a, an 18-minute flight. And all this is happening right away. And Elena, I've laughed at Elena saying, um, how far have I come? <laughs> Where I don't even bat an eye at switching all this stuff around and the airplane, flying the airplane and doing all of that. Where when I was, when I gave it up, it was just consuming. I laugh about this regularly with her that how far have I come to, 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 to do this? It's just, when I got my instrument rating, the next day, the next day, I took off and flew in IMC. The next day, I, I, I don't wait for anything. We uh, flew Matthew, my son, back up to Tallahassee, and we flew through about 30 minutes of IMC at about uh, 6,500, and then we had to get down into Tallahassee. Now, we broke out at about 2,000, but still, I'm fresh. I right. just got my license, and, and, and we're doing it, and it was stressful, and it was not, um, not easy. It's a little bit easier once you have that experience, right? Because you had when you got your ticket, you had about uh, what did you have when you had your ticket? About oh. well, I, I got my PPL at seventy seventy six. But when you had when you got your instrument rating, how much time already had your phone on the airplane? You know, I, I took a a year off. Well, not a year, six months off just to fly my airplane, just to learn my airplane. And that that saves a lot of time because once you're familiar with the airplane, now you now you're not thinking about. How do I land this thing? How do I slow this thing down? How do I turn? When should I turn? Right. When do I put the gear down? That 
knowing that process and having that rhythm and then throwing in instruments on top of that when you have 76 hours is a lot. Right. So I, we, I got my PPL in August uh, of 2020, August 7th, and September 11th, I picked up my airplane. <laughs> so a month later, I bought an airplane in Baton Rouge. You went with me. We picked the airplane up and we flew it home. So I remember that flight. We, we got to Baton Rouge and we were going down the runway. And what's a call that we always make going on the runway? Yeah, airspeed's alive. <laughs> Except the airspeed was not alive. <laughs> so it was, it, it was a challenge. And our, so the flight plan was to fly from Baton Rouge to Tallahassee to see my son because uh, I wanted him to see the airplane on the way home. And then we would fly down the, the coast to Miami. Well, lo and behold, Hurricane Sandy was coming up the west coast of Florida and out in the Gulf of Mexico. And by the time we got to Tallahassee, it was just bad, bad, bad weather. We couldn't go to Tallahassee. I we went to a... I've done a couple of repos with <laughs> hurricanes in the Gulf. <laughs> and, and you pick up the, the iPad and say, we're landing here at this little <laughs> tiny airport called Quincy in the middle of nowhere. And I had always struggled with finding the air, airfield. I could never see it. The, my instructor Juan and Chris would always say, "Do you see the runway?" No, I don't see the runway. <laughs> Do you see the? No, I don't see the runway. And you say we're landing there, and I go, "Felipe, it's right there." I was like, "And you go, where?" <laughs> and that's first time ever I've seen the runway. <laughs> this was a grass strip, no? No, no. It, it, no, they, this they is later. They, they, they have both the grass and the the pavement. Okay. But we, we landed right now, and as soon as we landed, I took pictures of it. Six minutes later, the skies opened up and you wouldn't have been able to get in. And so it was just amazing. Yeah, so, it was kind of one of those things like, this is where we got to go and this is as far as we're going to go. No talking about it. We're just doing it now and we're, we're done. We ended up spending a night, which is what you do with, with bad weather. You, you make these great decisions to uh, keep yourself safe. We spent the night. We got up the next morning. We flew home with the hurricane going off the West Coast. There, but it was far enough offshore, but we actually had a really nice flight yeah, home. We had a great, I mean, even the... It, if honestly, it didn't feel like there was a storm in the Gulf. It felt right. like a regular afternoon in a in in Florida. Right? right. We went through, and then okay, starting to get bad in the afternoon. Land, spend the night. The next day, we flew back. And then I remember that. I mean, it was clear, clear skies until the time that we got there. And then the next day, we flew back down. But you fell in love with that airport when we went there. I did. We we went your back son, several times. Son. Yes. Yes. Your son met us there, and then we, you know, he drove us to uh, to a hotel. We spent the right, night there. Right, right, right. Um, and then we did. We took off the next day. I can't remember. So you know, he 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 stayed up there, and then we went. We came down to Miami, one straight shot. Right. It was a two day uh, repo for that airplane. Right, right. We were planning on doing it on one day, but we got stopped. Yeah, it was a it was a while back, so I kind of had to refresh yeah, it, my memory. If it wasn't for the it. weather, we, we would have done it in one day. Now. The thing that I recently, well, I shouldn't say recently, but about a year ago, um, one of the things I liked about the airplane, I was looking for an airplane that could carry a, use, a good useful load and had good speed. So because this is a retractable, uh, Cessna didn't make the retractables for very long. They made it from 78 to 86 for this uh, 182. And she has turbo, and so she has a ceiling of 18,000 feet, and she has onboard oxygen. So all those things were what I wanted to, to have in an airplane, but never got around to, to using the oxygen. Uh, I had to get everything set up in the plane and, and all that, and we just, we're never flying high enough. And then one day I said, you know what, this is ridiculous. I wanna see what oxygen is like. And then Elena and I discovered part of my being tired was lack of oxygen. So even flying, we put oxygen on at 6,000 feet now. 
and it is we are addicted to it just <laughs> love oxygen so you don't have an apple watch but i've actually noticed and i've done my ox my um, blood saturation at altitude and cruise uh when i fly for for work and i'll be down in like 94 95 and the other day actually i um, i turned my mask on boom 100 it, it is just uh, amazing. I actually have a secondary bottle that I, I keep on the plane too, just because I don't ever ever want to be out of it. We fly regularly now at twelve to fifteen thousand feet. It's much faster up there. It's, it's much much cooler. It is just uh, tremendous. I mean, it is, I would will not fly without oxygen. It is just so so enjoyable. And now both of us land and we're not tired. Elena used to be exhausted too. She's not even flying the plane. So we brought Matthew home uh, about three months ago, and we were flying high, and he was he had oxygen on, but it's amazing people don't breathe. He was getting very low on his, uh, he was getting hypoxic with oxygen on, <laughs> because you got to remember to breathe through your nose and to actually breathe the oxygen in. So even though you have it on, you can still have an issue. I, I bought a, a setup that you wear on your forehead now, and it uh, goes to the iPad and monitors it the whole time that, that I'm oh, on the plane. That's so cool. Yeah. Talking about that, when we first picked up your airplane, it had older radios, no no basic, basic instrumentation on it. Right. So well, I remember when you brought it back in, we kind of talked about it, and then you did some upgrades to it. Tell me about the upgrades you did on your yeah, airplane. We, we, we initially put in two new Garmin radios and a G5. What, what, what a tremendous instrument the G5 is. That is just fantastic. So I have a blend of old gauges, steam gauges, and, and new technology. And it also has the Garmin uh, 375. What do you think about the 375? Because everybody talks about it. We put it on all our airplanes. I don't know. I, love I that flew plane. it on your airplane first and was fortunate that the plane came with it. And I love that device. It just does everything I wanted to do without thinking twice about it. Uh, Garmin gives you a trainer that you can have on your iPad so you can I spent a lot of time at home learning how to use it uh, and then try it you know I'd learn it on the iPad then take it to the plane and do it on the plane on the airplane. so what I wanted to do as I said earlier was get used to flying my airplane and become second nature now it came with the Cessna autopilot back from 1979 that worked great but all it does is it wings level that's it and which was fine you trim out the airplane and it holds the, the trim holds the altitude and it, it worked fine it wasn't so great for doing approaches and i also wanted to learn approaches only by hand i didn't want to ever have to be in a situation that a uh, piece of technology failed and now i have stuck. i'm rusty and i can't land this airplane when i need to land the airplane so i purposefully did not upgrade anything else on the airplane until i learned got my instrument rating and so I did everything by uh, by hand flying it, and it was, for me, it was the right way to go. So did you put an autopilot in it now? I just got it. Yeah. What'd you get? I ordered it in, believe it or not, September of last year, and it just got put in a month ago. It, it w everything was so far behind in, in getting it, and uh, I put in uh, the Garmin G GFC or GCF 500. Uh, GFC fi uh, 500. Right. What a what a device. Oh my God! Just like the wing leveler of the Cessna oh. Navomatic. What is it, Navomatic? Yes, yeah, yeah, so, <laughs> Navomatic 300. This this thing will fly it down to the runway. It will crash on the numbers. It, it will crash on the numbers. It, it has, so part of the deal for getting that was Elena has a big concern about what she would do if something were to happen to me. So 
the it has the the blue button that you press wings level. the wings level no matter what's going on you turn that thing on its, its steep turn and press wings level and it just levels out so now it buys you a lot of time to be able to do something then all you do is punch in the approach and tell it to fly and it flies right to that the glide path hits the glide path mace the turn hits the glide slope starts taking you down to the runway all you got to do is set the uh, power and you're done. Are you gonna get auto thrust on it too? <laughs> <laughs> it, it is just it, what what a change it has made in the way that that airplane flies. So I get my instrument rating. I told you, and I right away go do that. Then in December, so I got it in August. In December, we decide to fly it to Dallas. So the whole flight, well, I should say, from Midstate Florida, the plan was to land in Tallahassee, see my son. Uh, have lunch with them, and then go over to Baton Rouge, and that was going to be our, our first flight. We get to... It went just as planned, right? Oh, just as planned. Always, always just, just as planned. So 100 miles out from there, it is IMC the whole way. I get there, and this is going to be my first official full IMC landing in, in an airplane. It is nothing like what you trained for. Nothing at all, which I'm sure you know, but mine is fresh. Yours was 100 years ago. <laughs> and the controllers bring you into the final approach fix. They don't line you up way out there. They expect you to come right in at 1,700 feet and be ready to put it down on the numbers. That wasn't happening. I was amazed at how terrible I was. I kept flying back and forth through the uh, glide path, and I finally said to them, I'm out. I'm not doing this. Get, get me out of here. And they were very cool. They had no problem. Gave me a heading, gave me uh, an altitude to go to, and got me out of there. Looked down at my iPad, saw that Destin, Florida was still uh, uh, visual. Headed over to Destin. Get to Destin. It's IMC. <laughs> so now I have to make an, my second approach. I've already failed at my first, and now i got to make my second. And so it, there's a... Eglin Air Force Base is, is right there just before Destin. So you, you're, you're with a, uh, an, Air, an Air Force controller. I, I, I missed the, the first approach. I, I have to go missed, and I come around, and I get on the radio, and I say to him, listen, my friend, I'm tired. This is a newly minted IMC uh, uh, pilot, our instrument pilot. I need to get this on the ground, and I need help. And he said, no problem. Hang on a second. He comes back to me in about a minute and he says, all right, it's just you and me. Nobody else is on the frequency. It's just us. We've cleared the airspace. There's nobody here but you and me. And I'm going to talk you all the way down to the ground. I swear to God, it was like Juan was sitting next to me. It was such an amazing feeling to, to have this guy talk me down to, to the, the runway. runway. And it's such an important thing too, right? Because you you had a plan, you went to this, and then you diverted to an alternate, and a you know, and that alternate became bad too, right? Right. So now it's like that stress of, man, I made the right call over there, and now I'm coming over here, and this is bad too, right? So that third call was speaking up and saying, hey, I need help. I I and let me tell you what you tell them you need help, they give you help. I don't know what anybody else has experienced, but my experience has been every time with ATC, if I ask for help 
they give me help. I don't think I've ever heard a case where an air traffic controller has not helped a pilot in the in the point where they say, hey, I need help. Well, and, and this wasn't even terrible. I mean, we broke out at, at like 600. So it wasn't the, you know, it wasn't down to minimums. But still, the first it was just it was nerve wracking. I get on the ground, I go <laughs> into the FBO and I'm sitting there in a the pilot's lounge with a, a pilot uh, over there and we're chatting. Turns out he's an alumni from my high school here in Destin, Florida, and we start chatting. He's up, uh, he flies for Publix. He flies their private jet around. And he said, dude, you got really lucky at this place because you got an Air Force controller. He said they deal with this stuff every day, all day long. New pilots, training. A lot of training. A lot there. of training. He said these guys are really patient. They like doing this. And I, it was exactly what I experienced. This guy was very calm all the way, never switched me to tower, kept me all the way to the ground. He said, once your wheels down, then you can switch to tower. So the guy was just, it was amazing. It was just amazing. Took an hour and a half rest, jumped back in the airplane, flew to Baton Rouge. <laughs> IMC the whole way. You're we're, crazy. <laughs> we're we're 9,000 feet. So I'm coming down from 9,000 feet IMC to into Baton Rouge. It's four o'clock in the afternoon and it's as dark as if it were midnight. All the lights are on uh, on the runway. Now, fortunately there, we broke it at 1500. So for there, it was, it, a, it, it, it was no much, no fuss. I thought Elena was going to kill me. I mean, I just, <laughs> but w what a trooper she is. I mean, she, she has probably 400 hours in our airplane sitting in, in the right seat. She's crazy to follow her around for I'm, all this I'm telling huh? you, it's crazy. It's funny, you talk about being nervous and you know, you kind of point at me and say, oh yeah, for you. But I tell you, the first time I ever did a uh, zero zero landing where we couldn't see anything outside and the airplane doesn't auto land. Talk about being nervous. You're looking, you're <laughs> biting your nails and looking at those instruments and you see the, the littlest flick on the localizer or the gliso, we know we're gonna go around. And coming out and then just, Boom, there's a runway, airplane touches down instantly, and you just stop it on the runway. It's like, whoa. So, well, so to follow the story up, we go to Dallas. We spend a few days in Dallas, have a great time. We leave Dallas. We have a tremendous tailwind. We're up at 15.5, having a great time flying back. And now we're going to Tallahassee again on the way back to see our son. And it's IMC getting down to Tallahassee. Fortunately, this time, it was straight in. I didn't have to do anything except straight into the runway from 15,000 feet all the way down, down to the runway. So I said to Elena, listen, here's what's going to happen. You watch for the ground, and I'm going to just fly my instruments so that at least we have a, no, a known time when we break out. Now, they told us it was going to be about 700-ish breakout was what the pilot before us had said. So we kind of had an idea of, where uh, uh, of what to expect. The CRM, so, right? CRM, Carissa's management. She's not a pilot, but you reduce that workload just by saying, okay, I want you to look outside. When you see the runway, let me know. I'm going to focus inside on flying the airplane. Right, so that I don't have to de you know, move my move eyes, eyes from the panel, just stay, stay right to there, and she'll say, oh, I can see the ground, and then boom. And she knows what the runway looks like. She knows what the the, 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 the Vassies look like, and so she knows, knows what to expect. So it, it worked out perfect. Let me tell you what, the elation the two of us had of landing this airplane for the first time in true IMC and the, the, just knowing that you can do it. It was just, it was just tremendous, just tremendous. It's crazy flying around instruments and a little airplane. I, you know, I, for me, it's kind of scary. I'm very picky when I do it. Um, not that it's scary, but you know, I, 
I don't have that need to uh, need to go kind of thing. You know, at work, I'm going to go. Right. Right. Unless right. it's really bad. And I know that I'm, it's going to be unsafe. But when it comes to the little light airplanes, I'm kind of like, eh. but we <laughs> we never plan to go because, you know, even though we know it's that way. Tallahassee, I've probably flown into Tallahassee 15 times now. It is always bad. I think we've flown in there twice where it's been beautiful weather flying in the, once you get to Tallahassee. It's beautiful around it, but when you get to Tallahassee, it, is, it just sucks. <laughs> so I, it is great having that ability to know that you can break out a 700, and 700 is still well above the ground. Yeah, where you don't have to worry I'm, about. I feel safe doing an approach of 700. It's when you start getting to those approaches at 200 feet, 250, you know, right I, at minimums. I, I, I don't know that I would be doing that unless I have a, an emergency that I have to get down. And the, and the, and the alternative is just as bad or, or something. Now, we fly with f full fuel all the time. We never play the game of fuel. That plane is filled to the brim every single time. Uh, I think the longest I have flown is five hours in, in one stretch. The longest distance you've taken the plane has been where? Uh, to, Texas? To Dallas. Yeah. Dallas. Wow. Yeah. And how long did that take the entire flight? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, we broke it up in, in two days. So, you know, it, uh, it's probably 10 or 11 hours uh, full, full trip. But we, we, I like to not fly more than five hours. I mean, I've round tripped uh, Tallahassee quite a bit, where I'll wake up, wake up in the morning, fly to Tallahassee, pick Matthew up, bring him back, and to, to land him back here. So a little bit about Matthew. Matthew, when is he gonna get his license? Yeah, as soon as he get, gets done with uh, what he's doing up in Tallahassee. I know uh, uh, he's because you know the the thing about flying is you gotta fly. If you get your license and do nothing, it becomes a problem. Uh, my, my nephew started taking flying lessons at the same time I did. He, he got his license a, uh, a month later after I got mine and hasn't flown since. Yeah, uh, the, uh, one of the guys that I trained with here in, in your school, he got his license and then hasn't flown much since. It, you know, it's a great thing to have, but that touch and feel of everything that goes, goes on. And it's different every time I fly, which is the beauty of flying is it's never the same trip. As many trips as I've taken to Tallahassee, it's never the same trip. We, we may fly over the same thing on the ground a lot and see it, but the weather is always different. The conditions are always different. It's just you never are going to see the same. It's going to be a different one way, a different approach, a different... It's just always different. Different controller and, takes and, you in a and, different way. And yeah. I have gained so much experience, and there's nothing that replaces experience. That experience that I have being able to fly, as I said, that trip to Pompano, if I that if that had happened when just after I got my license, it would it would have been uh, disastrous for a lot of people involved in it. It just you know too much workload. Very but I mean, I, I saw the airspace was coming up for Opelika. I didn't hear the last digit of the frequency, so I got the frequency wrong, and I call and there's no answer. I see it coming up on, on the screen. I start a 360. I just turn away from it because I know I have to and didn't even worry about it. It wasn't a concern to me that I was going to have to buy some time for myself. Call back to the other controller, get the right frequency, got the right frequency now, and now it's no problem. That is, for whoever hasn't flown that shoreline, it's not an easy 
No. It's it's easy, right? You're 500 feet from right. northbound over the shoreline. But the workload of switching controllers, because you go, you know, you're if you're coming up, I guess you don't really talk to Apalaka if you're on the east side of the no, shoreline. No, you don't talk to Apalaka. Only if you're right. going up the intercoastal. But if you're going up the shoreline northbound, you talk to Fort Lauderdale International, right? right? Then as soon as that, they switch you over to uh, Pompano, I think it is. Yeah, depending where you're going. If, you, yeah. if you're staying offshore, then it's, it's not an issue. Fort Lauderdale and Palm Beach are the two that stick out into the water. Into the water, too. Good. But I think Pompano does, too. I think if you're flying right on the shoreline, I used to tow banners on that route back okay. and forth. And even on the banner, you know, we do that all the time, right? So it was like checking in and switch frequency, switch to the other one, because we would also come down on the intercoastal. So now on the intercoastal, you talk to Pompano, Exec, and right, you know right. all those. There's all, all of them are just boom, one little place. So if you're not experienced, you don't know the frequencies, or you're not prepared, it can really come in, and you'll you'll bust an airspace in a heartbeat. Well, I tell you, I used to think that we had busy airspace here. I have found that the, for me, the two busiest airspace are the Tampa area and the Jacksonville area. Oh my goodness, there are so many military bases in Jacksonville. You you can't take off without running into a, a military airspace up there. It's Destin crazy. is pretty busy too. There's a lot of restricted airspace there because of all the military training and the airspace. You got that flight line, you know, the, the route that they want you to take over the, the shoreline. Uh, but yeah, Tampa too. I've, I've actually flown into Tampa. There's so many airports and they all start with St. Petersburg, Tampa. <laughs> so you tell the controller, he goes like, yeah, which one? You know, like, yeah, the Tampa airport, the executive one. It's right. like, yeah, which one? There's this one, this one. <laughs> well, well, my parents live in uh, Largo, which is Clearwater. So I fly into a small strip over there called uh, Clearwater Airpark. Single strip, uh, non-towered. And I usually, I usually fly uh, flight following up there because they get me in so easily through all the airspace there. I mean, you, I've done it without it, but it's just so easy on, on the way up. On the way out... I don't use a flight following because I just stay 1,200 and I'm past the Tampa Bay and then it's nothing. It's clean. Get out of yeah, no, no problem. But getting in there is a little challenging, yeah, even to the point where I get yelled at once flying into there. I'm under flight following. They turn you out to the coast and then they turn you into the uh, airport there and you're flying behind St. Petersburg. And the airspaces are really close. To, to it. And if you're doing the 3-6 runway there, you barely have enough room to turn to base without bumping into airspace there. So I'm under flight following till two miles from the airport. And then he releases me. I barely have time to switch over to, to find out what, what's going on on the, uh, the CTAF there locally. And he switches me over and we go to turn. I see a C-130 Coast Guard flying up and, and to the left of me and I'm going what the heck is go going on I get on the ground and a woman at the FBO comes out and hands me a phone number and I said all right so I call the phone number and uh, it's uh, St. Petersburg and he said hey did you just land over there at Clearwater I said yeah he said you know you you, you went through our airspace I said I'm sorry uh, and I'm surprised because I was under flight following the whole way and he didn't release me to the last minute, he said, we had to divert that C-130 for, for you. And he, he was surprised that I was under flight following. He said to me, he said, they do that to us frequently, where, where they, they, they hand you, you off too late to, to really do anything. Yeah, sometimes you gotta be careful with that because they, uh, not be careful, but you know, you'll be in a situation where you think that you had did something wrong and it was just that the controllers didn't communicate with each other and, and in reality, you were in the clear, right? So. Well, I mean, technically, I was in their airspace. 
uh, even though I was being directed. Right, but, but if it's a class delta, unless it's a Bravo, you're good to go. You have a, you know, you can be in there. If the guy's telling you come in through there, you're on a squad code, you're a flight right, following, right, you're, you're right. good but to it, go. So it was one of those first time getting that, make this phone call. And that's which, scary. Which, scary. Which, you know, well, you kind of wonder what it's all about. And my recommendation is always uh, be polite. Uh, always be polite and apologize and uh, see what they you know figure it out right 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 we're we're humans we're always going to make mistakes the the guy was very kind he said listen anytime you need our airspace just here's our frequency call us we'll happily let you fly through it and not an issue Uh, he said i was just wondering what what was going on so it was uh it was a learning experience i i get having a learning experience every single time i fly there has not been a single time that i've flown where there wasn't something that i said all right, I can do that better, or I'll do it differently next time. It just, even flying around here locally at this airport that we call our home airport. I mean, there's nothing better than a long trip and you're flying back to your home airport. You just, you have that dialed in, in, you know, you've done that nine right so many times (laughs) that the airplane just knows how to land. It'll land there by itself. I used to joke around because we used to go to the Bahamas to uh, Marsh Harbor and Treasure. I'm like, if I take off and release the yoke and say Treasure, the airplane goes, choop, flies right to Treasure. <laughs> because you do that flight so many times. But I agree. There's nothing like hearing that, you know, Tamiami Tower, your clear land, your, your runway, your home. It just, there's just something about that, especially when I do these long cross-country flights. Right, right. About bringing the airplanes in. I always, I love doing that check-in. I always steal that check-in. I want to be the radio. So I <laughs> another airplane home. Mike, talk to me a little bit about aircraft ownership. So you've had an airplane already for two years. You had you bought obviously a, a, a used airplane. It had already. Uh, you, we did talk about the avionics that you did, but talk to me a little bit more about the, like the daily and the maintenance cost, operating cost. Kind of, what do you see? Like, you what, know, what's your advice or somebody I, that's I, looking I, to buy I, an airplane? I, I am absolutely the wrong guy to ask that to because you're very hands on. I don't pay attention to the cost. It, this was one of these things that I decided I want to do it. I like it, and it, it, it is what it is. It, you know, it's, as far it, as like headaches wise, like you know, I, I think when people think of a used car, especially for somebody that's not in aviation, I'm sorry for for used airplane, somebody that's not in aviation, they think of used car thing, right? Like you go to a dealership, you buy a used car. Who knows what the previous yeah, yeah, owner you know, did? it was interesting. This plane had a belly landing back in 2010. A long, long time ago, and nobody wanted to touch this airplane. I had passed this airplane over three or four times before I even made a phone call uh, at buying it. And then I just ca- called them up and uh, made a deal, and it was done. And that plane has been so rock solid. I mean, it just oil changes and tires, and you know, the, the, stuff. the annual inspection now. It's important that you really have a good relationship with the mechanic. You've got to have that, that relationship that you are loyal to them and that you support them and they, uh, you know, you pay attention to what they have to say. I mean, at the, I can call the, my mechanic at any time and the, he answers the phone, which is what you really need. I've been in other places and had, a, had an issue where I couldn't start the plane in uh, Georgia w- one day. And he was a, he was there at the end of the phone, and was able to give me some uh, advice. And we ended up calling the uh, mechanic on the local on the airport to, to to figure it out. It was wasn't a big deal, but you know, you it's when you're out there in the middle of nowhere, 
<laughs> it's tough, right? Right. Especially when you land there and it's a Sunday afternoon and there's nobody around the airport and you and you got stuck because of something, you know. I've had I've had my stuck on a Sunday afternoon in an airport with with a broken airplane and it, it can, and the, the big believe it or not the biggest thing was the plane sat for two days in 20 degree weather so my bird isn't used to being cold <laughs> and i'm not used to starting her cold yeah. yeah funny story about that so i i went and I picked up a 172 in um i think it was moline illinois is that illinois anyways somewhere up there right brand new kid i must have had I had a little bit more time because I've been flying so lo- so young, but a brand new private pilot license. And my mission was to fly this 172 back to North Perry. Cessna 172P model. Um, I walk into the hangar. They're showing me the airplane and all stuff. I'm doing the walk around on the airplane. Pick my head inside the cowling. And I'm like, is that a outlet? An extension cord? Did somebody leave an extension cord inside the airplane? <laughs> oh my God! Look, they left an extension cord, and I pulled this this cable, and the guy's like, "What are you talking about?" He's like, "Yeah, look, they left the mechanic left an extension." He's like, "No, that's the heater for that's the, the block heater." <laughs> <laughs> right, but here in South Florida, right. you don't even think about that. Exactly, stuff. exactly. I mean, the one day a year that that it gets into the high thirties, and, and then none of my airplanes at the flight school start, and everybody starts, you know, why isn't the airplane turning on? It's like because it's cold, <laughs> you know, and, and you know. To, uh, the airplane, my airplane has uh, is carbureted, so it has a primer, and has four ports uh, for the primer on the six owner. Well, three of them were clogged, and I didn't know that because here in Miami, you know, you push the primer, turn the key, and it, it starts. Right. You know, so uh, up there, what was happening is we weren't, we were actually not getting enough fuel into the cylinders to be able to start the plane. And we thought we were flooding it. But there wasn't any fuel, and we pulled spark plugs out, and there wasn't any fuel on spark plugs. So it was like, interesting. So we went once I got it home here. We went, we took the um, primer injectors out, cleaned them out. Now you just look at the key, and the thing starts. It, it, it's what, guess. <laughs> what a difference, you know. The, the 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 plane seems like it's doing everything right, but it wasn't. The little tiny nuance of starting an airplane in the same temperature all the time and then starting it somewhere else and you you discover this but that's another lesson for the for the for the logbook right absolutely that's what i said every time i fly there's and my checklist has gotten longer and longer meaning my 50-hour checklist so every time we something comes up it gets added to the checklist of could it be a possibility one thing that do you have insurance on the airplane? Yeah, you absolutely. have insurance. And how was the experience of insurance on a, you know, being older and having a retractable landing gear airplane? That's a fear that a lot of people have or, or they walk away from retractable airplanes because of that same reason. You know, I, I don't know if mine is uh, my first year was like thirty three hundred dollars. I mean, I don't know how expensive that is. I thought it was reasonable. I think that's reasonable. Yeah, I, I wasn't uh, sticker shocked by it. Uh, once I got my instrument, it dropped down to like 2400 or something like that. That's a big savings. Yeah, so that that was uh, nice. And now the uh, now that I have more hours, my I come up again in September, so we'll see what the new rate is. But you know, if it has any effect on what's going on in the world at the time, and also your age and your hours, and all. so there's it's always a a mix of of everything that c- controls the. Uh, 
insurance. But the the retractable. Now, what I did is the other thing I added to the airplane. As was, soon as as soon as I got it, was I found out that there's a device that you could put into the plane. And my son calls her Bitch and Betty. That if you've retracted the flaps or you have pulled the throttle back and the landing gear is not down, she starts yelling at you. Check landing gear. Check landing gear. Check landing gear. So. Um, and the, and the thing that prompted me to do that was I can't hear the stall warning horn in the airplane. So when I was training with you in your airplanes, I could never hear the stall warning horn. They they would tell me, the instructor would say, you know, the stall horn is on. I go, okay, if you say so. <laughs> <laughs> so I said, there's got to be a solution to that. So I found out that they make one that will talk directly into your headset. And it turns out that you could have the additional option on it of telling you about the landing gear if you have a retractable landing gear. Put that in the plane and... So it goes stall, stall. Stall, stall, exactly, exactly. So what a difference that made overall. Have you told your insurance that you have this? Because I think you also get a deduction if you have kind of like a landing gear safety devices on that. Oh, I'm going to have to ask her. So uh, I think that's about something that. that you should bring up on your okay. uh, on your well, next insurance. But it, 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 and we have placards everywhere in the airplane for landing gear. I remember you, if I remember correctly, you had like your own checklist. And I, and I was like, Mike, why aren't you using my checklist? He said, well, because you made your checklist for like a 17-year-old. <laughs> It's small. <laughs> right, right, right. I blew my checklist. I forgot. I'm an old man. It's hard for me. To, which is, you know, which is the other reason why I won't go to a glass cockpit. Because at my age, it's, I can scan my instruments and see the information that I need immediately looking at that one particular gauge. Like if you look at the G5 now with the new autopilot, it puts all of the autopilot information on that little G5. And there's just so much information to try and figure out where it is. When, when I'm landing, I, I have actually put little, tiny little blue pieces of tape on my airspeed so that I can know where I want that needle to be at a glance. I just look over and I see the little blue tape and the needle and I know I'm right where I want to be. And I've made all these little adjustments for myself in my plane so that, that it's easy. I took the handle off for my uh, landing gear and painted it a different color so it's different than every other I remember I remember when I when I saw your airplane and you had like all your labels you make like the placards even bigger <laughs> even bigger right but you know it, it worked out it, it works out you know so we have a routine that the first thing that happens on uh, for us when we're coming to a landing is the landing gear goes down it's the very first thing so I can drop landing gear at 140 uh, I try to push to get down to 120 ish but that is the very first thing that that happens in the landing se sequence before we do anything else we put gear down and and my my wife her job is we're coming to an airport the landing gear the landing gear the landing gear so she's uh, the first line of defense and then it's just routine Once, like you're saying earlier you fly the same airplane you get to into your own routine so there has never been a time that i've gone to flaps before landing gear it's always landing gear flaps always landing gear flaps well, actually, slow the plane down, which is the other thing that I really had to learn. You know, you're flying up there 15,000 feet and you're hauling ass, and then you're descending and you're still hauling ass, and now all of a sudden you need to get down to 100 knots to be able to land this plane. And that was a learning experience also, is, is to slowing the airplane down to the point where, you know, you want to do it while you're still out there for a while and, and that. And so, the, you know, just the routines that you come up with, at least for me, for my airplane. Now, I've recently started taking uh, aerobatic lessons. 
So uh, apparently the Cuban 8 is my move. So <laughs> if you don't know what the Cuban 8 is, you got to look it up yeah, because yeah. It's, a, it's a really interesting move. And I fly with a, a guy here at the airport, uh, the, the Jonathan Fox, and he has a, an extra 300. And I mean, first time I flew with him, he says to me, listen, this thing's rated for 12 plus or minus. I said, what does that mean? He says, it's 12 Gs plus or minus. You will break before the airplane, the airplane breaks. breaks. So you have no concerns about the flying this airplane, uh, you know, aggressively. So that I highly recommend to anybody. You must do a spin, uh, get your spin endorsement because what a difference it makes in understanding that you can control an airplane, that it can do some ridiculous things and all of a sudden you can still take control of this airplane and not panic. Yeah. I mean, well, I've done eight, continuous spins uh, you know put, looking straight down on the ground go, going what's going to happen here and you just step on the opposite rudder pedal and, here pull, it comes and all of a sudden boom it's just like nothing ever happened so we actually started recently uh we got the da20s now in the fleet and we can do spin training with the da20s and that's what we use and everybody that takes that class on the spin because we talk you know we talk about it on the ground then go in the airplane and do the the, the spin training Everybody that does that comes out a different pilot. It do, you they do. Just their confidence level, their understanding that, hey, I can recover this airplane and things don't, excuse me, they don't go right. Because a lot of times people, you know, when you talk about stalls, right? When you first started your, tra your training in stalls, everybody was afraid of stalls. Everybody, right? absolutely. Definitely you know, afraid of them. I remember, even for me, right? Like when I, they first told me, like, oh, stalls. I was like, oh, what is this, you know, the stall? I've been hearing people talking about it on the on the FBO and at the flight school. All the magazines. All the magazines every magazine comes out know, talks oh, about stalls. Quit stalling, right? You know, you always think of a stall, stall, stall. But, but then they add stall spin. Right. Okay, well, and that's what kills people. Yeah. So now you're going... Great. <laughs> yeah, I'm adding them all up, right? Check, <laughs> check. Now that you know, so getting the stall over, and you once you do a stall, you're like, oh, come on, seriously, this is what I was all you know upset about and all nervous about, right? And then you do the spin, and it's like, oh, okay, it's just another another procedure. Follow the follow what you've been taught to do, and right, you can right. recover. So, right. I think that really is is important. Whether you're going to be an instructor or you're going to be or not, I think you should always get a spin spin endorsement. Go get some spin training. So the you know it's one of those things that once you've experienced it, it's a different animal. For for example, I said to you earlier, you know, flying under the hood is nothing like flying an IMC. They'd like to think it is, but it is not. There's something about that looking out the window and everything being the same color, everything being white, and there be no difference. And what it is, when you're flying under the foggles, you still have stuff Some that peripheral. bleeds in that you can see the contrast of the ground. And, the, and so it's, it's different. Not only that, you're, you're psych psychologically, you know that if everything goes south, I can live this up and boom, I'm right. flying back in right. my, my, you know, my normal. There's no taking off the goggles on an IMC, right? There's there, no clearing the glass that, and that, turning that, on the that, windshield wiper. That, that's right. That's right. So if... If you're an instrument, working on your instrument, you need to go fly an IMC with a pilot that's done it before. It just completely changes the whole game of doing it. Down here in South Florida, we don't have a lot of IMC. 
I understand yeah, up our, north, they IMC is like our sunshine. We have IMC, but our IMC is dangerous. It's not like the IMC up north where you have, you know, fog or low visibility that you can't see or, you know, some light rain. Our IMC is thunderstorms and, and you know, you don't really want to Well, st them. stuff that you're staying away from or it's a layer of... 5,000 feet that you got to get through to get on to top. get on top or to get down below we do have our fogs but again that fog is low level fog so it'll you know you won't see anything on the runway right so right, right, i'm right. actually taking off here from tamiami when i had the baron and uh the visibility was horrible i mean you couldn't see i remember i was flying with one we we're taking off it was nighttime like it was just about dusk in the Baron IMC taking off. My alternate was Fort Lauderdale. If I had an in, if I had an issue, I had to divert to Fort Lauderdale because I was completely IMC. And Juan's looking at me like, I'm like, you know, this I, I do this in the sim all the time. I don't have an Airbus with me. Right. But I, <laughs> with the Baron, I was very comfortable in that airplane. I you know I was I had a lot of time in it, and we took off past uh, you know 150 feet, 200 feet. Boom, beautiful, right. calm, you know, day. But. If we had an engine failure on takeoff on that run, I, I would have been working. It, you know, it would have not if I wouldn't recommend somebody that doesn't fly and practice that stuff daily uh, absolutely. to do that kind of flying because uh, whether it's legal, is it's is it smart, you know, that's well, the as we said earlier, I'm not looking to fly an IMC. I want it to be there for in case I have to get out of a to. situation to, to do it. But that being said though, you need to go fly an IMC. Tracking back is talking about the bearing just reminded me of something that you mentioned. You purchased an airplane that had uh, previous damage history. The bearing I had had previous damage history too. And we got a really good deal on that airplane because of that. And we sold it for a very cheap price because of that. I know that there's a lot of talk in the industry about the value loss on an aircraft that has uh, an accident or incident. And it's kind of sad because sometimes that doesn't mean anything. Like in your case, right, your right. airplane. Now, I did the same thing happen to me. I bought this plane for a seriously cheap price. It was yeah. ridiculously cheap. Same thing with the Baron. And if I wouldn't tell you that the Baron had a gear collapse on landing, you would have no idea. Right. You would look at the airplane and be like, there's no way because it was done properly. So I... Let's it's listen. one of those things that if you can, if you know who you're getting it from, you do a good pre-buy inspection, you know, move forward on it. Because sometimes, like, you can get, you know, a really good airplane for that price. We sold that airplane. That airplane, the, the person that, I still track it every once in a while. You know, it's like your first love, right? Yeah. <laughs> so I still, you know, track it every once in a while. And they fly it at least once a week, which is nice. I like yeah. to see that the airplane is flying. It's not sitting in a hangar. Uh, but the previous owner that bought the, the sorry, the, the next owner flies the airplane a lot. So talking about airplanes, are you planning on sticking with a 182 or are you looking at something you know, else? I tried What's the future of your multiple aviation? times to look at different airplanes. I originally, I, I still want to get a Piper PA-46, which is the, the Malibu uh, six-seater pressurized. I mean, that, that is the plane that I ultimately would want to get to one day. Um, my flying, though, is different uh, the, for... I don't do a lot of cross-country flying. Our favorite thing to do is we fly at 700 feet out over the water and count turtles. My wife loves flying out over the, the, the reef there and uh, between the, the porpoises and the turtles and the sharks and the manatees and just the beauty of the, the water, that's our favorite thing to do. 
So I was flying with a friend of mine who's retired airline pilot, and I was telling him about the uh, the Malibu that, that I wanted to buy. And he said, you're not going to do this anymore with that plane. And he said, you really can't see the uh, the that d down there like you can out of your high wing. And I was like, hmm, all right, interesting. So then I started thinking about it. I said, well, because of the stuff that I l l do mostly around here with a few trips you know, up to Tallahassee and different places, that then I guess I need a toy. I need a sports car. I got the SUV, so now it's time to, to have a sports car. So I was looking at buying an RV-8, tandem seating, like f almost flying a, a, a fighter plane in that. And then Elena said to me, well, can you fly the plane? I said, you know, maybe I should get lessons on aerobatics before I start to do that. So that's when I started taking the aerobatics lesson. I learned that, you know what, I can pay to rent that plane a lot, a lot easier than owning my own a secondary airplane. Because I'm not going to give up my 182 ever. Yeah, the that's not a cross country. The 182 is staying with me forever, whether I pass it down to Matthew or whatever. But she just, she has wormed her way into our heart and she is just not going to let go. And so we keep the rear seat out of the plane because most of the time it's Elena and I flying and have these big rolling bags. You know, when my wife and I travel for a night, you would think we're going for six months. <laughs> I mean, the, we'll the, see your wife. <laughs> the, 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 the dodge, I'm just as bad as she is. <laughs> you know, I have a costume change or everything I'm going to do. <laughs> so it just, the That's space. Right. I remember when we went to pick up that airplane. You guys had a ton of baggage. I'm like, okay, you guys first, did you change the duffel bags now? <laughs> yes, I have a big, much bigger duffel bag. Because <laughs> I remember you had these hard suitcases. Oh, yeah, like, they were pain in the ass. I'm like, Mike, you not, need duffel bags? This is not oh, airplane friendly. <laughs> we, we have these great duffel bags that, that have wheels on them, and they split in half from top to bottom. So it's, it's just it's phenomenal. So they just, and they go right through the baggage door easily. And with the, without the back seat in there, they just lay in there. No, no muss, no fuss. Everything's uh, fantastic. And, you know, with the back seat, you can still get them in there. But what a pain in the butt. Nobody's sitting in the back seat. Right. So we get rid of the back seat. Put it. Put well, everything save some in. Some weight too. You know, the, the, in this plane, weight is not an issue. It, it, it is crazy how much of a workhorse that this this plane is. You know, we go pick up Matthew at the end of the year, and he's got between his guns and the ammo and his bags and everything. The plane is just loaded to the ceiling. It seems like, and it's like there are two people in the plane. It, she is just matter of fact. She likes to fly heavy in the rear actually keep a toolbox pushed all the way to the back because she lands better with weight. In it's a the, lot of in, weight. There's a big engine in that nose. Yeah, right? so that, that nose, is, gonna... that was the one thing that was super different in the, this airplane to getting used to. A lot of trim, right? Nose up trim. Oh, my God. And, and I got to tell you, I'm not the greatest. The landings is I struggle. I still struggle today with landings. It is, it is not my uh, greatest moment. Now, that being said, a good landing for me is I don't know when I touch the ground. Elena thinks I'm a little too hard on myself, but that to me is a good landing. Anything other than that was was not a good landing. So I, I work really, really hard because the landing gear on this plane is very expensive and would not call it the most robust out there in the industry. So I really try to put her down uh, smoothly, which has been a big learning curve for me to, to be able to do that. And I have finally come up with a whole bunch of little things that 
it was my placards in place, you know. <laughs> I, I, I finally understand having uh, a set of numbers that works, okay? 1,600 on, on, on the manifold, one a flap, so, um, gear down, gives me a, a drop of 500 feet per minute and 90 uh, miles per hour. And that is almost every time that happens. I go to two of flaps, I gotta bump it up to 1,900, and she is just perfect every time. And I land with two and a half of flaps now is how I, I land that plane. Every single time, pull, pull it back and yeah, figuring out, and now I've learned that if I get to 200 feet per, uh, per minute drop, puts me softly on the runway. So once I get to two of flaps, my next thing is 200 feet per minute and just let it come down. And that was the hardest thing for me to learn, is to let it settle. I pull so often and give myself that little bump up. And then that bump up and then boom. Uh, oh, oh, oh my God, well, yeah. I've, I've become the master of adding fuel right before you land <laughs> to, to, to arrest that, that fall. But now that I've learned the 200, you know, because when you do the math, that's about six feet per second that you're dropping, which is not a very, very big drop. So now I get myself down to that and it's just, and most of, I only land on paved runways. So the, you know, and most of the places I land are, the runways are so long that. If I, you land a thousand feet, I, it doesn't. I, I, I don't rush myself anymore. I did this whole thing of having to land on the numbers. Nah, not unless I have to. If I'm landing, I mean, the shortest runway I've landed on is 2300 over at Everglades. And that was very early in my career and just went to go do it to do it to see if I could do it. And you know, you got you got to know what you can do and what you can't do. Right. And then you start to, I found you adapt to, to what's going on. Did you get some crab out there? No, I didn't because I have my own trap. So, <laughs> <laughs> But you know, that's the other thing that Elena does for me when we're flying is she reminds me, take your time, no need to rush. If, if everything doesn't look right, I've learned to, to take a three-mile final now. Forget it. I don't need to turn this thing in a, at a mile and a half. Get myself out there three miles, take my time, get everything set, get everything stabilized, put it on the ground easier. Every time I've had my worst landings have been when I rushed it. So You rush it or the controller rush it, it just leads to always to... And, and which, is the, which is the thing that I learned with, with that um, first IMC landing, instrument landing, was... No longer am I going to go to a final approach fix. I'm going to tell them I want this fix out there, and that's where I'm flying to. And they'll accommodate me. I don't see where they're going to go, oh, no, you can't do that. No, they'll accommodate me and let me do that. Give me much more time to be set up, have everything dialed in, and just be able to fly that straight in without having to, to you know, making that turn, I think, is the hardest thing. Judging when to turn it so that you don't fly through it and then play the game go, going back and, back forth. and forth. And I've spent a lot of hours. I fly every landing now as an approach. Every, every single one. That's the secret of success. You're talking, you know, I consider myself a senior pilot, I guess, if you can say that. Every time I fly, in a 172, in an Airbus, whatever airplane that I'm flying in, I always load an approach, no matter what airplane. And you're talking, you tell me that I can't fly a visual approach. Of course I can fly a visual approach. I, sometimes I don't even follow the approach, right? 
but I always load on approach. Well, Today. not only do I load the approach, but I fly the needles. Yeah, no, I, I fly the needles and I and I come it down and I do my math and I check myself. Okay, I'm on my one mile, I should be 300 feet, two miles, I should be at 600, three miles should be around 900 feet. And I kind of do that math in my head as I'm coming down and I always find approach. Why? Because the day that I really need to fly an approach, I, I, I want it to be like breathing. Exactly. I don't even have to think about it. That I just, my hands automatically let that needle be there. And how much more does it cost? Nothing. Nothing, right? I mean, you, you can train yourself to not look out the window. You can train yourself to just look at the uh, the needles. And, you know, Elena's looking out the window. And I'm landing most of the time at Towered Airport. So I'm the only guy landing. And that. so it's, 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 you know, you have a lot of safety built into it and still take the practice of doing it. Even if you just fly down to 500 feet, it just gives you the, you know, the wind correction and everything else that, that's going on to just get second nature used to it. Not just doing it the six times every six months that you have to do, but if you do it every single time. And that's the cool thing about that 375. 50 you, feet. You can, pr you can decide how many miles out then it gives you that you're within range and you can press visual and it gives you the glide slope and glide path. For any runway. Without, right, without loading anything in. So you can fly those needles without question every single time. I love that feature. I always teach our students that feature and I, and I, I hope my instructors are always enforcing it because it's such a good tool to have. It's such a good tool to have. Are we gonna get a commercial rating? No. No. No? M more, more for liability reasons than anything else. I, I don't I don't ever want to have to be in a position where I'm being paid for just uh, for fun. I'm not saying as a I, I, well, that, that's part of the reason I'm doing the aerobatics is because it's just for fun to make me a better, a pilot. better pilot. Again, I, of course, I knew you're not you're going to say no to that. I mean, I, you're not going to necessarily do something like commercial flying. But, you know, just getting the certificate and learning new skills, kind of putting pushing well, that see, bar. The, another. The, I'll go do the um, the training without getting a certificate because I don't ever want it to be said that you were commercially rated and, and that it's, it's just a liability thing for me. It's, it's for, for plus, no other for no other reason. Plus, you got to study another 800 questions on the. Yeah, rankings, well, so. yeah. <laughs> Mike. <laughs> Thanks so much for coming. I really appreciate you having, you know, coming in and being a guest on our show. I think you are, uh, you're, you're showing, sharing your story will motivate some more people to come into aviation. Well, yeah, I hope some more old men want to <laughs> learn how to fly. So you guys can have some, you know, close for lunch somewhere and fly, fly your airplane somewhere. You're never too old to do this. I'm glad that you share that. I'm glad that you share your story because, again, my goal with this, the flight school and this podcast is getting people talking about aviation, excited about flying and, and getting a license or coming out, coming back into flying and, and, and pushing aviation forward or general aviation was really my passion. Right. So thanks again for coming. Enjoyed, enjoyed being here. Thanks for leaving. Thank you. We hope you've enjoyed the show. For more of our content, search on YouTube for Aviator Zone. If you know someone we should have on the show, please reach out at podcast at aviator.zone.